0: Today's video was recorded on October 19th, 2023, and this is the ninth and final lesson in our series on the Good News. As we've covered throughout these lessons, the original Good News is all about the Kingdom of God, that God's reign has been established in Jerusalem, and this is not only good news for the Israelites, but also good news for the whole world, for all the nations because they will eventually come to call God their King. So, it's all about Kingdom. And we've noted repeatedly that the announcement of God's Kingdom is going to be in direct conflict with the Kingdoms of Man. And the Kingdom of Man is exemplified by the Caesar. And that Caesar rules over the Roman Empire. And so, in this week's lesson, we're going to talk about the Kingdom of God. What does that mean? How do we enter the kingdom of God? And then finally, how do we walk in that kingdom of God once we've entered it? As we implement the fact that Jesus is Lord in our lives, then what does that look like? So that's what we're going to do today, talk about entering the kingdom of God. Now I wanted to give you a couple updates. For a while, I was able to release a lesson about once per week. But recently, some things have changed. My schedule changed. So, I do work at two different Christian schools, and my level of responsibility has gone up considerably this fall. Now, this, of course, affects being able to get a lesson out each week, and I do apologize for those delays. I ask for your understanding and forgiveness as I adopt this newfound schedule. I wanted to let you know that there actually are reasons why the lessons have been coming out at a slower pace. So thank you for all of your encouragement and your prayers and your kind words. They're like manna for my soul. It keeps me going. What's coming next? What's coming next after this series? Well, I'm going to do another installment of Bible 101. These are the basics of the Bible that we should have a firm understanding of. And this one is going to be on what has become known as the Great Commission. It's found in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. I use the phrase what has become known as because the term the Great Commission is relatively new. So we're going to thoroughly dive into this topic because you may not be aware, but there is disagreement over the meaning of Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And there are a number of details that we can explore very closely. And as you know, any time you take a close look at the scripture, you're going to not only be blessed, but you will find things that surprise you. And I'm quite sure the same thing will happen when we look very closely at, again, what we call the Great Commission. Now, I mentioned that there's scholarly disagreement about this Great Commission, and some even refer to it as the Great Omission. What are we leaving out? What did we miss? There's an excellent book by the great Dallas Willard called The Great Omission, and this is what we're going to be looking at, whether the commission is to go or to make disciples. And of course, by doing this, it leads us to a number of questions. What do you mean by disciple? What's a disciple? What was the first century conception of disciple that Jesus would have had in mind? Is disciple the same thing as converts? Is our goal to create converts to Christianity, or to create disciples of Jesus? Now from there, we'll go to baptism, because it fits. What does it mean to baptize? What does the Greek word baptize mean? Or another way to say it is, how can the Greek word for baptize be used? What's its range of meaning? How do we conceptualize what this verse is telling us? What's the point of baptism? So there's so many questions about baptism and i'm going to propose something to you that i think if you have a different conception of what this verse is telling us i think it'll change the way you see the practices of the church now the next thing we have is this idea of father son and holy spirit and we're going to talk about what it means to be baptized into the name of the father son and holy spirit what does that mean And finally, we're going to ask the question, what's the goal here? How would a fresh look at this command from Jesus be different than what we're currently doing today? Okay, now after that short series on the Great Commission, I'm going to switch. And so starting in January of 2024, I'm going to start the Book of John. And what I'm going to do is we're going to look at the Book of John through a mystical lens. Now, why would we do that? Why a mystical lens? Well, first of all, John is a mystical book, so that's actually how it should be read. But more importantly, people aren't familiar with Jewish mysticism or Christian mysticism. And then what does it mean for John to be a mystical book? In fact, in many Christian circles, the word mysticism is like a boogeyman. You know, Whatever you do, don't wade into the mystical side of things, even though the Bible is a mystical book. But I think that once you begin to see what John is up to, how he structures his book, some of the ideas within mysticism, they're going to be incredibly profound. You'll find it fascinating, really, because it's going to open up a window into John that you don't normally see, and I can guarantee that you'll never read the book of John the same way. It's an utterly fascinating book. And the depth which you can go into John is infinite. You can study this book your entire life and never reach the bottom. Because John is tapping into the infinite. And that's what mysticism is and does. Anyway, so this is what's coming up. This is what we have to look forward to to finish off 2023 going into 2024. But let's get back to today's lesson, the final of our series on the good news, and I pray that this lesson today, I pray that it helps you gain a deeper conceptualization of what the Bible means by the kingdom of God, and what it means to walk in God's kingdom with Jesus as Lord. So God bless you, and enjoy today's lesson. Okay, so this lesson today, we're going to be wrapping up our series on the Good News. What does the Bible mean by the Good News? And What we're going to do today is we're going to do a review of this whole series and then we're going to finish with the Kingdom of God. What is the Kingdom of God? What is it that Jesus and the New Testament writers, Paul and everyone else, what are they talking about when they mention the Kingdom of God? So how do we understand the Kingdom of God? Because The good news is about the kingdom and that it's available to everyone. And then everyone has a conception of the kingdom of God. And then that conception that we have affects our present reality. So it's important that we get it as close as possible, as close as we can to an accurate conception of what that meant. So the entire series has been exploring this question, what do you mean by the good news? And as with everything in the Bible, there's always a context. There's always a historical background. There's always something within the culture that those first century listeners or readers would have heard that we don't. Now, unfortunately, we don't always know or fully understand what the context was that these words were spoken and written. So, what we're going to do is really explore around the topic of the good news and to say, how can exploring around it help us understand or, or get a better conception of what they mean by it? So that's the question. What is the good news? And we're going to look back because there's a good news within Judaism and there's a good news within Greek writing. What did they mean when they used those, that phrase? Or in, their, in this case, both Hebrew and Greek have one word. We have a phrase. They have one word. What did they mean, good news? A little bit, we touched on what is a gospel, because we read what we call the good newses or the gospels. Gospel sounds better. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We also interchange the word gospel with good news, but they mean the same thing. So what is a gospel? There's a mystery. There's a mysterious component. Paul talks about the mystery of the good news. And then one of the things we've been looking at was an original proclamation. What was the original proclamation that went out into that Greco-Roman world? We looked at Acts 10 verses 34 to 43. That's an example of the original proclamation. And then finally, the most important thing that we looked at was the Roman empire, because that's where Jesus is born into. And within the Roman empire, they have what we call the Imperial cult. And that's the sanctioned worship of the Caesar. And it's so important to recognize that is who our New Testament is going up against, this idea of the divine Caesar. Now all of this, if we put it all together, what we come up with is the idea of a kingdom. We take all the components and put it together. Now part of the reason of even doing this series like this is because we have a problem. Uh, There's a chasm between the way biblical scholars and regular church-going Christians understand the phrase, the good news. And largely, it's because of the way that it's taught or communicated within the church. I mean, the good news, we say gospel or good news, we use it so often, we don't stop to say, now, what what do we actually mean by that? what do you mean by the good news? Can I articulate it well enough? That's why this series is so important, because if we've strayed from the original meaning that Jesus and Paul and the other writers had, well then we're going to end up with a watered-down conception of what the good news is. So that's really, that's the genesis of this. I explained in week one that during seminary, it was my final uh, semester in seminary, when I did a whole research paper on the good news and realized There was a whole bunch of stuff that I had never even been taught in seminary because we just don't talk about it this way. So, okay. Now, that was our first installment, right? What is the good news? Then we wanted to say, what about the background? Because both in the Hebrew, that's the Old Testament, and the Greek, there's a word, one word, that we translate as good news, okay? And so if we go backwards into the Old Testament, You end up with a Hebrew word, it's basar, and that means to bring a message of good news. You go down to the Greek, we end up with a Greek word, euangelion. It means to bring a message of good news. Euangelion, by the way, is where we end up with evangelical, somebody who brings the good news. Now, in the Old Testament, There were good news about the birth of a son, maybe the arrival of a king. That was always good news. And, most importantly though, there was good news of victory in battle. And, as we see in Isaiah 52, 7, not only is the announcement of, say, God is victorious, but God is returning to reign in Jerusalem. And that's Isaiah. It's used a number of times in Isaiah. And it tells us the picture of God's return to Jerusalem that will eventually reestablish his kingdom, and then the whole world will eventually come to worship God there in Jerusalem. So, that's out of Isaiah. Now, the Greek goes all the way back to Homer, and Homer talks about that the good news is a gift from the gods. So, something that was brought from the gods, and then because it's good news, there's a sacrifice to be made. Now, that's the Greek. Eventually, though, and this is where we get to the first century, what's going to happen is that Greek word is going to be applied to the emperor, because now you have the good news Greek word for an emperor ascending the throne. And then what we saw is that Greek word is used to talk about the good news of the birth of Caesar Augustus, that his birth was good news for the world. And that's exactly what our Bible says about Jesus. And you can see how those two are going to collide. Now, then we went to week three, and we said, okay, what was this original proclamation? If it's about the kingdom of God, what was this original message? Because we should be looking for something about the kingdom, right? Whereas today, our tendency is maybe to focus on our eternal destiny, right? The forgiveness of sin, if you ask most people, what do you mean by the good news? Uh, It'll probably be something like, Jesus died for my sins, so that I can receive forgiveness and go to heaven in the afterlife. No mention of kingdom. And also, what's really important, is that the kingdom is a present reality. So we need to focus on the fact that when we make Jesus Lord, it's our present reality that's affected. Yes, one day we'll end up in heaven, but the point is, we want to bring heaven here to earth. So, it's the present reality of the reign of God. So, we talked about how important the book of Daniel was. And this was in week three. And Daniel was an important book for the New Testament writers. And oh, by the way, Daniel is a book about kingdoms. And in the book, the kings of this earth, like Nebuchadnezzar, they come to recognize the God of Israel as the one who is reigning and has the real kingdom. So, for instance, Daniel 6, this is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is proclaiming to his people and his earthly kingdom that the God of Daniel is the living God. So, I issue a decree in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and endures forever. okay. His kingdom will not be destroyed. There we have the idea of kingdom. His dominion will never end. So the acknowledgment by an earthly king of the God of Israel as the true king. And then what's even more is you go to Daniel 7 and there's this vision of the heavenly reality, the greater reality that we don't always see. And what is seen is one like this, or one like a son of man. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. And what about this son of man? He's sharing a throne with God, and he was given authority, glory, and power. All the nations and the peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Now, that's all Kingdom language about this One like the Son of Man. It won't pass away. His Kingdom is the One that will never be destroyed. There again, you see this idea of Kingdom. And so, the Son of Man that exists in the heavenly realm and reigns with God, well, that is Jesus. So, now as Jesus has resurrected and ascended, He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's the one reigning over the kingdom of God in the present. And that is a powerful proclamation, that Jesus is reigning, he has the authority to reign. And then, what does that mean then, that he has the authority to judge, forgive sins, and reign, for us to enter the kingdom of God? Now, as I mentioned before, we looked at Acts 10, 34 to 43, I would read that multiple times, become familiar with that, and what makes this interesting is it's a speech by Peter, but what's unique about it is Peter has been proclaiming the original message, the the original good news, but he's been doing it to Jews. This is through the book of Acts, and then when he get to here, Acts chapter 10, now it's to Gentiles. So there is something unique about this message as it goes out into the world. Now make sure make sure you go back. If you haven't done so, download that week's handout. It's on our website. Because what you get are all of... I put all my notes so that you can read the passage yourself. And then I have notes that are pointing you to places that you can go see or the concepts that surround those verses. Okay, that was uh, part three. Part 4, then, we moved on to Caesar Augustus. He's the first Roman emperor, and what comes along with him is the imperial cult, and that is the sanctioned worship of the Caesar. With every new king, with the rise of the Caesar, and particularly Caesar Augustus, what was supposed to happen was a new Roman world order. It's supposed to be a time of change and a new order for the world as this king now is ushered into the throne it's supposed to be a an era of law and order of health and prosperity of justice and mercy and ultimately an era of peace that's the promise that they're making now this may have seemed true if you were one of the wealthy people and the upper crust of the roman of, of the roman society But not if you're a slave. There's no law and order for a slave. There's no health and prosperity for a slave. Not if you're one of the enemies of Rome. You're not getting mercy from Rome. So, although they're making this claim, the reality of the claim is false. Now, what's interesting, and no coincidence, is that our Old Testament is promising the same thing as well. We can look to the prophet Isaiah. And the prophet Isaiah speaks of a new order. It's a new heavens and a new earth. A time of peace is going to be ushered in under the new king, King Messiah. And what do we get? Law and order. And the Messiah is able to judge perfectly health and prosperity, justice and mercy, and then ultimately peace. And so both the Roman Empire and our Bible are promising a new era of peace. But the real question is, what is the path that's being proposed? What's the path being proposed by those kingdoms to achieve this peace? Right? And we're going to see this later when we talk about walking in the kingdom of God. There was Roman peace. There was an ideal to the Roman peace, the Roman way to peace. And the ideal was peace through victory. And this is on their inscriptions. It's something like this piety. It means a return to the old virtues. They're thinking back to their history and how great Rome was. Place your faith in the virtues that made Rome great. Make Rome great again, is what they're saying. So it's piety. Then it goes war, victory, right? Because war and victory show our strength and that we're superior. And then when we defeat you, oh, then. We can have peace. So, it's peace through war, or peace through victory. Now, what we want to do then, because that's the, that's the empire that Jesus is born into, we want to look then and say, what about the kingdom of God? What would their way to peace be that Jesus as Lord is going to pronounce? And so, we would start with covenant. Because we're entering a relationship with God through a covenant. The new covenant, the ratifying sacrifice of the new covenant is Jesus himself. So we're entering a new covenant with God. It's all about relationship. And we're going to work to maintain our allegiance to that relationship. And then God has, There there are promises that God made on the other side. We have forgiveness, not war. We don't go out and destroy our enemy, we forgive our enemy. Look how often in the New Testament Jesus is imploring you to forgive those who you disagree with. And this is a radical power that exists in God's cosmos. You know, we we all know that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourself, but if you don't know how to forgive, then you can't. Love your neighbor as yourself presupposes forgiveness. Now, are we seeking victory over everybody? No. We want justice. We desire justice over victory, even when it means that we were wrong and we may have to give up something. And it's then we find peace. And what we do, if we want to be part of this kingdom, if we make Jesus Lord, then we have to walk in this way, covenant, forgiveness, justice, peace, over, 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 over. Are we going to stray from the covenant? Of course we are but God forgives us, and so we turn, we repent, we come back to the path, and it's when we become kingdom people, when we're practicing forgiveness, justice, it establishes peace throughout the land. You manifest peace. So, this is what it means to be a kingdom person. It's very important. Now, we went and looked at a city in Turkey called Priene. A beautiful city in Asia Minor. And it was there that archaeologists, well, they found an inscription to Caesar Augustus. And the inscription has all of his titles, it bestows upon him as the Son of God and Savior, and that his birth was good news for the world. So here's a sentence from that archaeological find it says, with the result that the birthday of our God, that's, you're talking about Caesar Augustus here signaled the beginning of the good news for the world because of him. The beginning of the good news. Now, it's the beginning of the good news for the world, they're saying. That's almost exactly what's said in Luke. Because it's Jesus' birth that's the good news for the world. And what's happening here is, collectively, the world is looking for a Savior. They want someone who can deliver them from the chaos. Someone who's able to renew time release the past and the terror of history so that we can all have a fresh start. But it can't happen. All the kings claim it, but it can't happen. The guilt remains, and it remains to be dealt with. So all of the past has to be judged for what it is and then forgiven. And this is the efficacy of Jesus, that by the time Jesus shows up and the good news is going out into the Roman Empire, those people are ready to hear about it. And then, they experience the forgiveness, and it transforms them. When individuals properly enter the kingdom of God, they experience spiritual regeneration, and that comes with freedom of releasing our sins. And the good news and Jesus walk right into that culture, and they're primed for that message. Let's see, then... Week five, we noted that the good news and the imperial cult, well, it made it all the way to Israel. So, it was right there when Jesus was conducting his ministry. And so, Herod the Great, who was the king in Israel when Jesus was born, he had built three shrines or temples to Caesar Augustus in the land of Israel. And then we looked at one of them. We looked at this temple. That's what you see here in the background at a place called Amrit. And right there is a shrine to Caesar Augustus. It was this is really amazing, folks, because this was discovered about 25 years ago. And so you can go there today and visit it. And Omrit is very close to Caesarea Philippi, and Josephus, the historian Josephus, he tells us that this is exactly where Caesar had built one of the shrines to Augustus. Now it's also, and this was what I brought up in that lesson. What I think may have been the backdrop to the question that Jesus is asking his disciples Who do you say that I am? He walks them up to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and here's this temple to Caesar Augustus. And Peter responds He says, You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Sounds like Daniel. Now, why does he have to say living God? Right? And is it possible that right behind Jesus, as he's asking this question, is a temple to Caesar Augustus? who's called the Son of God, Julius Caesar, who's not really a god, and is no longer living. And I think that this is possible, it might make some sense, considering this archaeological find. Now, all of this said, I want to jump forward to part 8, I'm going skipping a few weeks, but this is the lesson that we did last week, week 8, and it has to do with this idea that the world was looking for an imperial man we discuss the human condition and how humanity is longing for an imperial man someone who has the power of the heavens to regenerate time and this is exactly the augustus inscription that's what they're saying it's a calendar inscription they want to renew their calendar based off the birth of caesar augustus they want to renew time and augustus was considered to have the powers of the heaven right he was his adopted father, Julius Caesar, ascends into the heavens, which means it gives him the power of heavens, Now, which, of course, he didn't have. But that's when God decides to send his son. And you notice that even the disciples, many in Israel in Jesus' day, they're looking for a human leader, another King David, to lead the nation. They want an earthly kingdom. That's what those disciples want. They want to reign. In earthly power, Jesus says, it's not the point. You're missing the point. So, we looked at this idea that humanity exists across time and history is riddled with guilt and shame and regret as we look back just look back at the bloodshed of the past and how humanity has treated one another. And the sins of the past, the guilt of the past, become a weight on our soul. And so, at the core of our very being is this weight, and it must be dealt with. So these sins, they must be judged, and what I mean by that is they must be brought into the light, like a confession an acknowledgment that it was wrong. When you come to Jesus, if you open yourself up and say, "God, search me, O God, know my heart," that's the great Psalm of David. Search me, look for the areas that need judgment. God will say, "Okay." Let's bring them all to light. And you have to trust that God is going to deal with them in a way that frees you. Because after He's going to judge the sin for what it is, then He's going to forgive the sin. And that is the path to freedom. And that's why, in the book of Acts, Jesus is the cosmic judge. He's the sinless one who has the authority to judge, He's also able to forgive your sins and therefore, He's an authentic Savior. And of course, His name, Jesus, Yeshua, means literally, God's salvation. And so, Jesus brings about the kingdom reign of God, and He has the power to save you, judge the sins of the past, and forgive you, and now you experience freedom. Now, so we have this good news that God's kingdom is reigning, Here and now. And one like the Son of Man is co reigning on the heavenly throne, and that's Jesus. So, what we have to do is conceive of then what is the kingdom? How is the kingdom experienced as human beings? And then the second thing we have to do is how do we enter that kingdom? Now, the first thing that's really important is the kingdom is always in the present. In our Bible, it's always about the present reality. Yes, the future will be there one day in heaven, but this is about the present reality, and it's a transformative process that occurs within our very soul, and this is where we experience the kingdom, and where we become co-creators, in a way, of the kingdom, because it's manifested through us, and so we have this tendency to place the kingdom somewhere out there, like in the afterlife. Well, one day we'll end up in the kingdom because this place is a disaster. You know, something like this. But it's really about the present reality. Bringing that peace of God right now. Okay? And again, remember, they're looking for the, the people in Jesus' day, even the disciples. They're looking for something in the physical reality. Jesus says, that's not what I'm offering. Now, we talked about in week eight, we talked about this idea uh, that God is calling the world out. He's calling humanity out of the ways of the past and into a new way of being. And this is epitomized in the story of Abraham. As God is telling Abraham, leave your country, your family, and your father's household. Go to a new land, right? It's a call out of the ways of the world. And then Abraham is called out toward personal responsibility righteous action, the responsibility of justice. And we see this demonstrated through his actions. He has hospitality towards others, the stranger. He has responsibility towards his household and Lot. He, of course, argues with God about the fate of even one righteous person in Sodom. And so, it's about Abraham and being called out. Now, the New Testament is going to echo this idea. And the New Testament is going to indicate that anyone can become a child of Abraham, right? You respond to God, and it's your way of being. This is Paul's argument, right? You don't have to be Jewish to enter the kingdom of God. You have to take on the faith that Abraham had and then walk in that faith. So, for instance, in Luke, this is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is baptizing, and he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Now, notice you have to bear fruit. Your way of being must be in alignment with God's kingdom. This is what John is saying. He's saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The king is returning, folks. Get back on the king's program. Change your ways. Change your path. Repent. It's constantly, you know, you're constantly shifting your path to get back on to in alignment with the king. And if you're truly repenting, he's saying, if you're truly repenting, you're change your path of behavior. Not just what you believe. It's not a belief. It's action, right? Notice he doesn't say, get the right doctrine so that one day you'll go to heaven. It's not about doctrine. It's not about the creed you profess. It's about bearing fruit. Then he says this, and and don't begin to say to yourself that we have Abraham as our father. Hey, you can't just come out and say, look, we're Jewish. We have Abraham as our father. So we're in the kingdom of God. John's saying, no, 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 that's not it. It's not about your race or lineage. I mean, this is the entire message of the New Testament, that anyone can enter a covenant relationship with God, regardless of where you're born. You could be rich, poor, male, female, slave, Gentile, Jew. It doesn't matter. So then he finishes, For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Don't get too arrogant thinking that you're the only one, right? Thinking that because you're Jewish, you're just automatically and This is what's, what makes God so angry in Jeremiah. They're showing up to the temple saying, well, we've got the temple, but we're not acting in the way that would reflect what God wants. Now, and we can go to Jesus because he says something like this. And I think we really need to pay attention to this. Right? What is he telling us? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What's the qualification? The one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And notice, it's the one who does. It's action. It's a way of being. It's a path that you walk. It's not, I believe the right doctrine, therefore I'm in. That's not it. It's not about a proper creed. It's action. It's a way of being. Now, I don't want you to misinterpret what I'm saying. Your way of being doesn't get you into the kingdom. You reckon, when you make Jesus Lord, confess, repent, receive the forgiveness, now you're in the kingdom. Your way of being is the result of accepting Jesus as Lord. When you make Jesus your Lord, you naturally adopt a different way of being. So, accepting Jesus' reign—again, confession, repentance, etc.—that's a transformative process that results in a change in the way of being. What if you don't change your way of being? Then you haven't entered the kingdom of God. That's according to Jesus. Okay, now there's a metaphor in the Bible. It talks about being in exile, and there's no doubt that forgiveness of sins does Actually, get into this idea of entering the kingdom. The good news is the good news of the kingdom. The forgiveness of sins is how we enter that kingdom. And again, even after entering a covenant relationship with God through that new covenant, well, we still require forgiveness. It isn't as if we become perfect or something. We're still going to go off the path. We still need to turn. But the Bible here, the Bible gives us this very strong metaphor of exile. We're all Exiled from God's kingdom, metaphorically speaking. It's just like Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden. Why? Because of sin. And so are we. We're in exile because of our sin. The Israelites were exiled into Babylon. Why? Because of their sin. So, if we're in exile because of sin, what's required to get back into the kingdom? Forgiveness of sin. Well, judgment and forgiveness of sin. We have to see the sin for what it is, and then forgiveness. So, if sin causes our exile, it's judgment and forgiveness that usher in the return. And this is why Jesus is presented as a judge. He's properly able to judge and forgive our sins in a way that we experience the radical freedom that can be found. This is the cosmic salvation that individuals experience regardless of your situation. And then once we're in the kingdom, once we enter the kingdom, now we have to walk the path of the kingdom. And walking the path then keeps us squarely inside the kingdom. And nobody is perfect. What this requires is almost like a continual repentance. And repentance simply just means turning. We're constantly turning. Right, Every time we go off the path, we make a mistake, we we went right when we should have gone left we repent that's how you get back on the path in fact sometimes we think of repentance as this one big thing at the very beginning when i accepted my salvation and then everything's forgiven and i go into this life as a christian but if you read um martin luther had his 95 theses that he nailed to the door go read the first one number 1 is that life is a life of repentance Meaning, you're constantly turning to get back onto the path that God has in front of us. Now, what's the path? Well, it's this, it's what we did earlier. You focus on covenant, forgiveness, justice, and that brings about peace. It's not a list of rules. I mean, covenant definitely implies relationship, and it's a dynamic relationship. And when you depart your covenant promises, you confess, you repent, you turn back to God. It's no problem. But you have to be doing it all the time. And then forgiveness, right? Not only do we experience forgiveness for our own sins, but we're called to forgive others. And that's a process of releasing those things that upset us. I mean, forgiveness truly is the oil that lubricates all human relationships. They wouldn't exist without forgiveness. Then we have to have to have that focus on justice. We elevate, like Deuteronomy says, justice, justice, shall you pursue. You seek justice above all else, not winning. And we have to have, that actually comes from a strength of character. And we have to develop our strength of character to place justice above our own desires. I mean, today, everybody has a perverted sense of justice. They want the they want the person to win that they want to win. And they call that justice. If they win, it's justice. If they lose, it's not. That's utterly false and you have to have the strength of character to stand in the tension and want real justice now a, a great example i'll share with you before we wrap this up is psalm 15 it's just an amazing psalm because this is the person who's in the kingdom of god now in the psalm old testament it says lord who may dwell in your sacred tent who may live on your holy mountain that's that's the old testament language for dwelling intensely with god so who Who is in the kingdom? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, think Abraham, who speaks the truth from the heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, think love your neighbor as yourself, and casts no slurs on others. That's also from Leviticus 19. Very important chapter. Uh, Verse 4. Who despises a vile person, but honors those who fear the Lord. This one is one of my favorites, who keeps an oath even when it hurts. And how many people in our world, the moment things start going wrong, they change their mind, and they drop whatever oath that they had originally established. Verse 5, the person who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept bribe against the in, uh, a bribe against the innocent, that's an injustice. And whoever does these things will never be shaken. That's the path. That's walking in the kingdom of God. So we enter the kingdom of God, which is a dynamic, ongoing covenant relationship. We continually acknowledge his lordship, Jesus' lordship in our life. It's a life of continual repentance, constantly turning, recognizing where we went wrong, confessing it, having it judged, and aligning our way of being with the path of God. In all of this, you have to entrust Jesus with your past. Invite him in. Judge my past. Forgive my sins so I can experience the freedom in the present. And at the same time, we're surrendering our future anxiety and fears. How many times does God have to say, do not worry? Well, apparently, it's not enough because we still worry. And all of this, when you do this, It is a transformative and mystical experience because we're not really sure how it happens and you have to trust the process even though it seems like our world is telling you to do the opposite. So the good news is about the kingdom reign of God. Now what do I have to do? Well, you have to enter that reign. Free up your soul through a process of judgment and forgiveness and then walk the path. And all of this is about the idea of renewing time, but Christianity has redefined it at the individual level. That when somebody enters the Kingdom of God, and you allow Jesus into your heart, you are renewed. You experience it's a regeneration of your soul, and it's a level of freedom and profound meaning. Really, you have a deep sense of meaning in life. You can't find it anywhere else. Now, part of that is because it comes from the creator of the world itself. This is what we were meant to be when we were born. So, when we do this, when we enter the kingdom of God, we transform ourselves. We transform the reality of the world around us. It affects our family, our community, the society as a whole. And God willing, one day, will transform the entire world.